I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending September 18th. In this episode, Mythic is a company specializing in AI accelerator chips for the inference segment of the artificial intelligence market. The company stands out for a rare technological approach. Its AI chips employ analog processing techniques. We talk with Mythic co-founder and CEO Mike Henry, who explains why that should prove to be a significant edge in the long run. Also, the rumors were true. NVIDIA is going to buy ARM. We've had a month to think about what that might mean. So, what might that mean? We talk with Tyrius research analyst Kevin Crewell, who once upon a time worked for NVIDIA. The market for artificial intelligence processors is somewhat more difficult to follow than many other semiconductor product categories, because there seem to be a lot of ways to segment the market. For example, At a fairly high level, the AI market has diverged into two application streams, one for training and one for inference. Training means what it says. If a customer, say for example a Wall Street brokerage or a pharmaceutical company, wants to install a system with artificial intelligence, it can't just unwrap a brand new computer turn it up and expect it to start trading bonds or designing antiviral drugs. If you want an AI system to do that sort of thing, it needs to be trained first, and that training is typically done using processors that are good at training. Inference, on the other hand, is what AI systems need to do after they're already trained. Once you have an AI system that's familiar with the fundamentals of bond trading or creating chemical compounds or whatever, you need a system that can apply that knowledge to react to incoming data. That's inference. Now, one of the other things that makes AI complicated to grasp is that there's almost nothing you can say about AI that isn't contradicted by exceptions. For instance, you can find AI chips capable of both training and inference. That said, those are the exceptions. Generally, training tends to be done with general-purpose processors and graphics processors, and lots of them, often installed in huge data centers. Inference tends to be handled in specialized AI accelerator chips and AI processors, and they're likely to end up almost everywhere other than data centers. There are literally scores of inference chip companies. Why so many? First and foremost, because it looks like it's going to be an enormous market, and that's inspiring the establishment of a lot of startups. Also, there are many different hardware and software methods to perform inference. Also again, there are many different applications for inference that have vastly different requirements in terms of the amount of processing power required, the power budget of the system, and even the characteristics of the data that will be collected. The structure of the data might recommend the use of one set of mathematical calculations over another set, and that might influence which AI accelerator to adopt. 
Mythic is one of those many AI accelerator startups, but it's also among those that have begun to stand out from the pack. EE Times editor Sally Ward-Foxton wrote about Mythic in June, just after the company had attracted another $30 million in venture funding, for a total of over $85 million. Mythic is one of the few companies using analog computing techniques for AI processing, and it appears to be unique using those techniques in combination with onboard flash memory. The company reported preliminary results for evaluating live video that show its processor will be five times better in terms of frames per second per watt. Sally's article said the chip will be built in a 40 nanometer process and will be available later this year. We sat down with Mythic co-founder and CEO Mike Henry to ask about the AI market and how an engineer can figure out what AI processor to use when. You're going to hear a lot of jargon, so here are some quick explanations for what I thought were some of the more obscure references. You'll hear about YOLO V3. That's a model used to train AI chips for object detection. You'll also hear about ResNet 50. Most artificial intelligences are based on one of several types of neural network. One type of neural network is a convolutional neural network. ResNet 50 is a complex 50-layer convolutional neural network for image detection. Now, much less obscure, but just in case, you'll hear us discuss TOPS, which stands for trillions of operations per second. Finally, GPT-3. That stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer 3. That's a language model that produces text almost as sophisticated as humans can write. At the moment, it is so complex, it can only be run in data centers. Okay. We think that arms you for the upcoming conversation. My colleague, Junko Yoshida, was with me in our interview of Mythic CEO, Mike Henry. Here's Junko. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hi, doing great. Thank you for having me on this. Yeah, this is great. You know, the um, we recently had uh, Jeff Beer as uh, a guest a couple of weeks ago for this show. And he was talking about that, that really the purpose of Embedded Vision Summit is walk designers through how to pick a right AI processor for their specific applications. And I figured that, yeah, because there's so many processors companies popping up, you know, it must be really difficult to to make the right decision. So before you launch into your product pitch, (laughs) I want you to explain what sort of uh, potential customers, uh, what are they struggling with? What are you hearing? You know, you you have a lot of chance to talk to these guys, right? Yep. Well, just right off the bat, running state-of-the-art models, you know, uh, some, you know, YOLO V3 is one of the highest quality object detectors out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I could count on one hand, maybe one hand with a few fingers removed, how many you know, emerging AI accelerators can actually run YOLO V3 at 60 frames per second. You know, so even just just running this, the quality models out there is a is a big challenge. Um, you have to have a really strong architecture and compiler in order to be able to deliver that. Uh, 
And then as the state of the art moves, you need to be able to keep up with that. Uh, very difficult. Uh, the second thing is power. And you get a lot of attention on, you know, what's your, what's your power running peak workloads? But that's not a very realistic real world scenario. Often you're only running at 30 frames a second, not 600 frames per second. So often you're not doing anything because nothing's happening in the scene. So, you know, what's the power when nothing's happening? What's the power when you're at 25% utilization? That's where a lot of people also fall flat and, and we excel. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you know, performance in real world scenarios where you might have multiple things running in parallel. You know, your operating system might be doing other things. You might be compressing video. Can you hold your performance claims in those kinds of environments? Um, or is it a very isolated, unrealistic benchmark? I'd, I'd say those are the three things we consistently see with customers. And that's why, despite there being so many entrants, we still have very strong you know, progress and uh, uh, you know, potential with customers. That's good. Can you give us some examples of what a leading edge application is and maybe a couple of examples of applications that don't need that kind of power um, so, so that we get a set. The other, in other words, I'm asking, uh, you know, if, as if I were an engineer trying to build something, if I was trying to build system A, would I come to Mythic? If I were trying to build system C, would I go to somebody else or would I still go to Mythic? Yeah. Okay, so we'll just take like a security camera because it's, you know, it's a very large mature market and the rate of adoption of AI acceleration is picking up dramatically. So it's a great, great market to focus on. Now, um, you know, there's, there's two, I'd say there's two trends that are really driving uh, AI adoption and security cameras. The first is archival metadata. So documenting everything that's happening in the scene. So you need to be running object detectors saying, okay, this person with the red hat walked across the scene. Uh, you need to be running pose detectors so you can say, all right, somebody jumped over the fence. So I'm going to run a um, regression on the on the po you know, human pose. And you might be running scene segmentation. So you could say, let me know every time a car drives through the intersection. Now, what, what's the intersection? That's scene segmentation. Uh, so there's already right there three models that would struggle to run on a GPU. And how do you run those at you know 60 frames per second and uh, one to three watts of power? Uh, the second one is, um, okay, maybe I'm going to annotate the scene for a security guard. So I'm going to isolate the people and make, make them highlight. Or maybe I'm going to actually like, you know, do stick figures over the people to add privacy. Uh, maybe I'm going to like play with the contrast and the compression settings and the camera settings with AI. That needs to happen in like 10 milliseconds. You need to be able to modify the scene before it gets to the video compressor. So now you're talking about running state-of-the-art models in 10 milliseconds on one to three watts of power at a price that is, you know, uh, low double digits. You know, that's, that's, that's the challenge. I mean, that's the, the mountain that everybody needs to climb that, that we have a very effective solution for at Mythic. So that's a really good explanation of the one application. But what about, you know, when I was going through your website, you talk about the possibilities of your chip being designed into, well, this is the video analytics that you just mentioned, but yeah. um, data centers, aerospace, automotive, uh, industrial. I mean, there, there are a lot of things you mentioned. I mean, are you just throwing out there <laughs> or are there specific uh, applications that your processor really excels? So, yeah, where we 
really excel is, you know, there's not specific models that we really, it's not like we're a ResNet 50 accelerator. You know, we, we excel in the fact that just take a state-of-the-art, uh, you know, convolutional model and we have a flexible enough architecture and a powerful enough compiler that we'll likely be able to support it at, you know, best-in-class latency. So it, it really is more about like what is, what is driving the demand. So in the data center, you know, what's driving the demand is, is saying, we need to optimize for average power, not peak power. Yet sometimes we might need to be running video analysis on you know ten thousand streams of video, but maybe or maybe it's four in the morning and we we don't have that much workload. So are you burning a lot of power when you're not doing a lot of work, or are you burning a lot of power all the time? You know, an FPGA would burn a lot of power all the time. So data center they care about very good power management, very low power and state-of-the-art model compatibility. And, and, and really, that's that's what uh, analog compute can deliver on those. Now, you, you brought up aerospace. Um, yeah. You know, we have a, I mean, we already have a, a, a prototype uh, um, effort going on where we're working with a drone company to do depth estimation on six cameras. <laughs> Again, which struggle on a, G, a GPU to do one camera. How do you do six cameras on a drone power form factor, you know, a drone power consumption? Uh, budget. And, and not only that, it needs to be 10 milliseconds of latency. I mean, it's you need to make instant decisions here. Yeah. So it's just the sheer volume of the work that needs to happen in a short amount of time on a small power budget. It, that, that's really what, where we get a lot of attention. We also recently interviewed an analyst of uh, strategic analytics, Ian Riches, and he recently wrote a tech paper comparing uh, mobile eye with NVIDIA. And inevitably, the discussion was about TOPS. Should TOPS be the metrics that everybody should use to decide on what um, processor to choose? And of course, you know, I would hate to people say, well, it depends. Yeah, everything is depends, right? (laughs) But tell me that your take on where this TOPS battle going. I mean, it's it's, it's a great battle for NVIDIA to be in, but what are you seeing in there? I still think TOPS is a fine metric to do a very rough comparison with. And, and I think the key there is is you also have to bring in uh, power consumption and you have to bring in cost, obviously. So, you know, NVIDIA, NVIDIA's TOPS numbers are in systems greater than $500 and not that, you know, not that many edge products could support that. But if, as long as you have kind of the cost and the power side by side, you know, TOPS is a, is a perfectly fine number to do a very rough View of it. I mean, we say 35 tops, and that might not, uh, you know, be too impressive on a against a $10,000 uh, data center system. But when you get, you look at the cost and the power, it's best in class. And and then and that then directly translates to our ability to run a lot of models in parallel. It's a fine metric. I mean, it's just it's just it shouldn't be your decision point. You know, right. but it, it's not. I wouldn't buy a product based on marketing material. <laughs> Right. So Mythic is rare for its expertise in implementing its technology with analog. Does the analog nature of the chip make any difference or is it just your way of getting a really good performance per watt? So, yeah, the, the performance per watt is best in class and then the analog gets us that. And we also have a, a very rich roadmap for big improvements on top of that. So if you fast forward six years from now and we're 
way ahead of the pack after we've refined the technology over multiple generations, it will be because of analog computing if you're just looking at you know, performance, power, cost. Uh, I'd say there's two other benefits to it that are a little more sneaky, but will be huge in the long term. You know, the first is the, you know, how many weights can we store on a single chip and still have that chip be cost effective and not have to have any sort of external memory? So, you know, right now we're in the, the range of, of high tens of millions of weights to hundreds of millions of weights. Uh, but if you look at the, what's possible with the density of flash memory, there's no reason you can't paint a picture of saying that we can get that number to a billion or even tens of billions of weights. So now you're talking about running like GPT-3 scale models in a cost-effective edge device. Right now, that probably seems like science fiction to people at you know Google and OpenAI, but I mean, that's what analog compute can get you to because you're computing inside of the flash memory and you don't need a whole bank of processors and SRAM. Um, the second sneaky benefit is the power management side of things. You know, you can put this, if a system's built out of flash memory, you can put it to sleep, you can wake it up instantly. You don't need to boot up DRAM chips. You don't need to load stuff from external flash memory. So you can do that with tens or even hundreds of millions of weights and go from a sleep to results in milliseconds. And that's very, very unique with analog compute. No one else will be able to deliver a solution that can do that. Having the flash on board uh, rather than working with an external uh, memory. I think it, you just explained what the operational advantage is. Is there much of a cost advantage with that? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, I would just say take a YOLO V3 at a high resolution and say what systems can run that right now at, at a, you know, a really uh, competitive frame rate. They're all really expensive systems. You know, they might have multiple DRAM chips. It might be, you know, 10, seven nanometer silicon uh, and all, all the power management that, or all, the, all the, the, the stuff you have to put on top of that to deal with the power consumption. You know, that just adds up to systems that are gonna be, you know, multiple hundreds of dollars. So just the simplicity of having a single chip solution in an older technology node gives you a sizable cost advantage. And on top of that, there's a lot of room for this to grow, right? So we can increase the density of storage per square millimeter quite aggressively and, and keep that advantage over time because, you know, we're going to be scaling down the flash memory curve. So with the power you're envisioning being able to scale up to over subsequent generations, do you guys sit in the back and think about the cool science fiction-y things you might be able to get away with and enable? I mean, the, the thing I, I, I think about a lot is like, a, and just me personally, it's just like a, a rosy like robot, you know, from the Jetsons. Um, just think about like how much time do I spend doing things? I was like, oh, I wish somebody else was picking up all this laundry. And, um, and, and unfortunately, we're not the only bottleneck there with the compute. It's also the you know quality of the cost and, and things like that. But something that's pretty exciting to me. Um, you know, picking I up just, your laundry, something exciting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I, I mean, you know, there, there's other, you know, there's other things that are, are exciting that are a little more feasible, right? Like, um, you know, just, just drone delivery alone can yeah. have a huge impact on quality of life across the world. Yeah. I, I mean, there's so many remote areas that have just so hard to access. Yeah. Like, that's just one thing. And there's probably 10 things you could name that are like that. Yeah. That one thing alone, if you just sit and think about that for an hour, like the really positive impact that can have on the world is really exciting. But you got to have a drone that doesn't run into power lines. And even that's an unsolved problem. Right oh, now. that's uh, that's so true. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. I'm going to throw in the business question because this sure. is the week when uh, NVIDIA announced the acquisition of ARM. And I just noticed that you guys are not using ARM or MIPS. Um, your processor, processor core, you're using RISC-V. Tell me about, well, first of all, why did you choose RISC-V instead of ARM? But don't you think that if, this is a big if, NVIDIA's acquisition of ARM actually consummated, then would that present a big challenge for you guys or no? No, I, I don't think so. Um, okay. So, you know, we, 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 we chose RISC-V specifically because it's going to be, you know, buried deep in our architecture and is generally not exposed to the end user. You know, we have a, a compiler that hooks into PyTorch and TensorFlow. Uh, you know, the RISC-V is, in, is invisible to the end user. Um, you know, I, I think the strength of ecosystems like ARM and, you know, their competitors, you know, they come into, you know, if we were going to build a more full-featured product like an SOC, that's where the strengths of those kinds of platforms come into play. And, you know, it would probably, would, you know, that's a separate decision we have to make as a company as to I what see. we adopt. Right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, and, and you know, I, 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 I'm going to stay out of the, the whole NVIDIA ARM acquisition thing is it's 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 just a remains to be seen thing. But I mean, I I don't I don't have enough of a strong crystal ball to know what's going to happen there. Let me ask you one thing. I just think about the, you know, your comment about Risk Five and ARM and NVIDIA. That was actually good. I thought it was good because you mentioned that that you might have to make a different decision when it comes to the people start looking for SOC designing. Right? Does that open the door for you guys to start licensing your um, processing IP to somebody else. And by the way, just as a, as a point of disclosure here, you know, the um, president of the IP division of ARM is on our board. Renee Haas is on our board. The business model question is a good one. It's one yeah. we get a lot. You know, I, I, I think that there's obvious advantages to selling chips and boards from a business model perspective. There's also advantages from an I, you know, of having an IP business model. I, I don't, I, you know, long term, I don't, I don't see any sort of mutual exclusivity between the two. Mm. Um, you know, there, if, if there's areas where like directly selling chips is not advantageous, you know, we would not shut any doors on on having an alternate business model for that. Right. You know, at the moment, we're we're focused on chip and board sales, though. Okay. But I, you know, the, the technology does lend itself very well to you know a number of other alternative business models like licensing. Yeah. Um, Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank I appreciate you. it. And uh, yeah, and please, please stay tuned to Mythic over the you know coming months. You know, we we uh, are analog compute works, and we're going to have some exciting news about that coming out in the coming months. So please, please pay close attention. And you know, we look forward to a continued great relationship with the EE Times, and you know, really appreciate you including me on this. So thank you. That was Mike Henry, co-founder and CEO of AI accelerator designer Mythic. The company said its AI processor is appropriate for applications such as smart cities, consumer electronics, autonomous vehicles, and intelligent factories and farms. Last summer, NVIDIA's stock price started soaring. As of July, it was up 70% year over year. We picked July because that's when NVIDIA overtook Intel as the most valuable semiconductor company in the United States. 
That was just by a couple of billion dollars, and NVIDIA still brings in less than a quarter of the revenue Intel does, but it's a clear indication of how NVIDIA is coming up in the world. NVIDIA is known for graphics processing, and because of that is a darling of gamers. But it has been gaining successes in other markets. For example, the company has been flexing its muscles in high-performance computing. Other companies commonly use its GPUs in their supercomputers, but NVIDIA earlier this year built its own, in a very short amount of time, using its own silicon. That machine is considered the seventh most powerful supercomputer in the world. NVIDIA has also been making gains in AI. And then early this summer, rumors started swirling around that ARM Holdings might be for sale again. ARM had been bought by SoftBank in 2016 for about $33 billion. In early August, the press reported that NVIDIA might be interested in acquiring ARM. Now keep in mind that NVIDIA had just bought Mellanox for $6.9 billion in March. The acquisition of Mellanox seemed like a pretty big bite. It was, after all, the second biggest semiconductor deal this year, behind only analog devices proposal to buy Maxim Integrated for $21 billion. Earlier this week, NVIDIA announced it was buying ARM for $40 billion. That's now the biggest semiconductor deal of the year, by a factor of two. Now, the combination of NVIDIA and ARM isn't necessarily obvious. It's not as if ARM completes NVIDIA the way Dorothy Boyd completed Jerry Maguire. It still remains to be seen how the two might work together even after they made their preliminary case for the combination in their joint announcement. Kevin Crewell worked for years in the semiconductor industry and now follows semiconductor business and technology as an analyst with Tirius Research. We called him up to see how the rest of the world is viewing the pairing of NVIDIA and ARM. Once again, it was a three-way discussion with Junko. You'll hear her voice first. What is your take on NVIDIA's grand plan? If one thing, it destroyed my Sunday afternoon. Yeah, uh, mine too. Why do they do these things on Sundays? I have no idea. What is this? (laughs) That was annoying. Uh, the first thing, but uh, so and to give, I got like 15 minute notice for the uh, conference call too. So the grand plan, I believe, is I, I, this is an interesting combination. So Jensen Wong uh, and I've I've worked with Jensen when I was at Nvidia from 2006 to 2010. Mm-hmm. I spent some time, but uh, I think Jensen has always wanted to control more of his ecosystem than he has in the past. You know he. Uh, has a obviously the GPU and the and AI stuff, but he's never controlled the CPU side very well. He's built his own ARM cores for the Tegra line and for his uh, his auto, automotive products, but I think he wanted more control over that ecosystem, the the CPU and the GPU all working together. And I I, I believe that he may have been unhappy with the progress ARM was making in in, in that regard. ARM is you know very. As a, uh, I would say they're very measured in how how they move ahead, and they're very cautious and they sometimes conservative. And, they've, and since being bought by SoftBank, they've gotten a little more aggressive. But they're they're not nobody's as aggressive as Jensen. Sometimes when he dives into a market and a big time, and and he uh, he wants to make some big moves. So uh, I think the opportunity to buy ARM 
when uh, SoftBank decided to put it up for sale uh, was a, a once in a lifetime opportunity for Jensen to really, uh, and, and NVIDIA to really own the ecosystem and bring it into his uh, purvey. And I think it couldn't have come at a better time for, for NVIDIA because their stock price is is very high right now. They've done very well in their in the marketplace. Uh, so they have a good cash position. They have good stock uh, right now. So they could afford to shell out the $40 billion for ARM. Now, you also got to realize SoftBank bought ARM four years ago for $31 billion. So that's only about a 25% return over four years. Not a great return on the investment, but I, I sense that SoftBank really needed to make a move now. Uh, SoftBank is also going to get a percentage of uh, NVIDIA because NVIDIA is paying partly by giving stock to SoftBank. So hopefully SoftBank will make more money on the stock uh, over time of NVIDIA. And then from ARM's point of view, the the management there, they had obviously uh, a deadline. They were told by SoftBank, we're going to sell you off. So what are they going to do? So IPO takes time. It's complicated. You don't know the end result will be uh, in terms of dollar value. Private equity funds, those guys are financially driven. ARM is still an engineering-driven and, and an R&D-driven business. They may have not been willing to invest in the company the way that ARM needs to be invested in. And I think this was a situation where NVIDIA's management focus on R&D and investment and AI perfectly worked together with ARM to make a, a better solution for both companies. And uh, I think, to, to my mind, from a SoftBank, uh, ARM, and NVIDIA point of view, this is a win-win-win. I think they're very happy. The biggest challenge will be, well, obviously regulatory. Uh, even though you know Jensen on the call was very clear, oh, we, we have complementary businesses, this is not going to be difficult to explain to the regulators how ARM's licensing business is different from NVIDIA's enterprise and chip business, uh, and then how you know how uh, NVIDIA will keep ARM uh, licensing open and all, all that. Mm-hmm. But it's still complicated, and you got to realize ARM has a real monopoly on the smartphone business. Yep. Every smartphone yep. uses an ARM core. Most smartwatches use an ARM core. Many, many embedded devices all throughout the ecosystem from networking uh, to automotive to whatever industry you want to think of have ARM cores in it. So I think the regulators are going to be very cautious to make sure that NVIDIA is a, a proper steward of the ARM ecosystem and everybody does have a fair and equal access to the ARM and uh, and also it's not, you know, doesn't get uh, overcharged for it. Well, they, uh, I mean, when they floated the idea a month ago, wasn't the whole point of floating the idea in the press sort of like, let's find out what kind of reaction we get from customers, our potential competitors, to see if anybody just totally freaks out about this? And, uh, you know, ultimately there wasn't really much of a freak out about what might happen if, if NVIDIA bought ARM, right? I don't well, know. Yeah. Oh, well, nobody could, well, I, I think it was premature. Nobody would freak out because 
It was a rumor. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they wouldn't publicly freak out, maybe privately freak out. We don't know right. that. I think both uh, Jensen and Simon seem to indicate that no, the customer has freaked out, but they didn't right. say there was no, yeah. cu- but they didn't say that. And they also didn't have any customers oh, with any drop quotes, right. endorsements. Right. Yes, yeah. there were no endorsements either. Yeah. So I think uh, many of the customers will probably take a wait and see attitude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there'll be ongoing negotiations and, and talks. I think there's some complicated relationships. I mean, NVIDIA competes very uh, with uh, Qualcomm and NXP and automotive and robotics. Yep. Uh, so right. there's a sore spot there. Apple and NVIDIA do not have a good working relationship for many years, uh, going mm-hmm. back to some chip failures back, to, uh, back years ago, over a decade ago. So I think uh, Apple and NVIDIA has to patch up a relationship or develop some sort of working relationship there. Or maybe ARM just acts as intermediary. I mean, uh, the closest model I can think of is Qualcomm. Qualcomm has the chip business and the licensing business. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and they're sort of arm's length from each other, uh, pardon the pun, but it is a little different. Qualcomm licenses their technology, not so much the chip guys, but mostly the system guys and handset manufacturers um so this is this is a little closer uh to a, a conflict of interest in that in video we competing with people and licensing it to them at the same time so it's it's very interesting how that'll that'll work out one of the things actually i read this in my former colleague peter clark's piece um in his article he actually made a very good point which is like well the mortal sin nvidia made in this arm acquisition is because they never, you know, you should never be in competing with your own customers, right? That's number one. But beyond that, NVIDIA never made it clear in the announcement, either in the press conference or in the uh, press release, that they are going to operate arm as an independent company outside NVIDIA. That was not clear. I also, well, I also think, uh, actually, I think it was kind of clear from from what I listened, that the engineering side of uh, ARM would be merged very closely with the engineering side of uh, NVIDIA. And also NVIDIA is going to give, you know, in the the public statement, uh, both GPU and and, uh, and AI um, IP to license along with the ARM IP. So, yeah, the, it, it does seem like there's a, a much more co-mingling yep. that'll take place yeah. that maybe that's others a, will not be comfortable with. That's actually pretty fascinating. Uh, I mean, what's uh, do you have any viewpoint on uh, how successful uh, they might be offering their their GPU expertise and AI expertise as IP? Well, you know, everything comes down to, well, it all depends, right? I hate to say that. It all depends on... <laughs> well, yeah, that's well, true. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, it all depends. Is it the latest and greatest NVIDIA graphics technology or is it like, you know, Gen Minus One? Mm. Uh, you know, they oh, will they will they part it out? Like, okay, you get this part of the, right. the GPU, but I, I won't give you the, uh, the ray tracing part. That's a separate uh, IP license. It, it all depends how they break it out. And, and you know, NVIDIA has never been a successful IP licensing company. They've tried a couple of times in the past. Yep. Um, I think their best chance may be on the Tensor side, uh, the Tensor accelerators, because they've 
they do have a strong ecosystem around CUDA. Mm, right, and, CUDA, uh, yeah. And so that may be a place where they can enhance uh, and, and sell the IP at a more reasonable market uh, that would accept it. The GPU mm-hmm. is much more complicated. They've never tried really. Most of the time, I think they've tried to license GPUs, but more of a patent issue as opposed to, hey, we're going to give you real IP that you're going to execute on. But this, this is still, uh, we, we have to wait a year because NVIDIA and ARM still have to ind- operate as independent companies until the deal's done. So we don't know what details of what IP NVIDIA will really offer up in detail. That's true, uh, It could yeah. be very interesting. I mean, maybe Apple would wind up looking for a high-performance GPU, and they've already, you know, they could they could license uh, some of the NVIDIA stuff. Uh, I don't know. So, uh, Samsung, Ten years is long enough to yeah. hold a grudge? Well, maybe. Uh, some <laughs> companies have a long memory. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's an institutional memory. But in the case of just recently, not, well, it was last year, year uh, Samsung licensed some IP from uh, AMD for Radeon graphics, for high-performance graphics. So, right. yeah. yeah. So, or we could see something like MediaTek or one of the other guys. Or, you know, if, if everything finally goes back to more normal relations between China and the United States, a company like Huawei, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah but when you're speaking of China, though, I mean, this if this, everything, uh, you know, um, goes through, uh, this means China will be beholden to American chip company. NVIDIA, period. Everything they make, from smartphones to smartwatches or the, um, the whatever the systems that they're going to make, they, they will be beholden to uh, NVIDIA. I don't know if any Chinese government would be happy with that. Seriously. Well, I mean, right now, a lot of their servers still rely on uh, AMD and Intel processors. Uh, they haven't escaped from that yet either. There is, in the technology business, I mean, the reality is the United States has a, a foothold in so many industries, it's hard to escape. But um, if a Huawei is successful in uh, moving away from Android to their own operating system at some point, you know, maybe they move away from ARM to RISC-V. RISC-V yeah. is getting a lot of traction in China. It's, you know, RISC-V International, um, and it's not U.S.-based anymore. Uh, so... Right. There's uh, there, there could be a lot of other options in the future for China. They have a, a very flexible ecosystem they could adapt over time with the right will and right. the right government backing. Um, I have one last question. When you and I talked before, you mentioned that uh, many of the things that uh, Jensen wants to do might have been able to do it without actually buying ARM. Do you still hold to that? Or do you, do you, do you think that uh, the NVIDIA really had to buy arm in order to do what it needs to do well from a very restricted view uh, in terms of if nvidia wanted a its own cpu performance for data centers yeah they could have bought ampere marvel or uh, nuvia or bought a design team and built their own arm server and just did that right and that would only cost maybe a a billion or two uh, Mm -hmm. you know relative small number billions Right. But this is a once, like I said, a once in a lifetime opportunity for Jensen to um, take a bigger stage. And I think that's why he couldn't pass up on the opportunity. So this really puts NVIDIA at the forefront of the whole entire semiconductor industry. You know, nobody, you know, there's no way around ARM. ARM is ubiquitous. And so with a purchase ARM, the, NVIDIA then becomes, by association, ubiquitous as well. So it's, it's definitely a, um, a situation where I think 
Jensen is looking for the bigger stage here. And, and this is the biggest stage he could imagine. That was Kevin Crewell of Tyrius Research. As noted, the deal is subject to regulatory approval by the UK, by China, by the European Union, and by the United States. The company said completion of the transaction is expected to take place in approximately 18 months or early in 2022. Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of watershed events in technology history. There's a saying, those who don't learn from history have to take makeup classes in the summer when everyone else is off and having fun. So today, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to September 23rd, 2008. That was the day the first Android phone became commercially available. It was designed by Google and built by HTC for what was then an also-ran cellular network operator called T-Mobile. The phone was alternately known as the G1 and as the HTC Dream. Android is now so thoroughly associated with Google, it's easy to forget that it was originally an independent company. It was founded in 2003, and the story goes that it was originally dedicated to building an open-source operating system for smartphones. A decade after its founding, in 2013, one of Android's founders, Andy Rubin, admitted that the company's original plan was actually to create a new open-source OS for digital cameras. That was the goal for only six months or so, though, but it was the original plan. The company switched to smartphones when it quickly realized that smartphones were already gutting the market for standalone cameras. Two years after its founding, in 2005, Android was bought by Google for $50 million. Apple introduced its iPhone in 2007. Google responded by organizing the Open Handset Alliance, a group of technology companies that would develop an entire open ecosystem for building handsets. It included handset makers HTC and Motorola, chip companies like Qualcomm and Texas Instruments, and T-Mobile. That first phone to come out of the effort was, as we said, the G1, which ran the Android OS and operated on T-Mobile's network. That phone had a three and a half inch screen that slid up to reveal a full keyboard. The reviews were tepid at best. The design was uninspired. It didn't do quite as much as competing phones, and it even lacked a headphone jack. But it did well enough for Google to stick with it, and with gradual improvements year after year, Android caught on. In fact, it caught on really well. Google today calls its purchase of Android the best investment it ever made. It quotes the market research firm Statista, saying that as of the end of 2019, Android was the OS in almost 75% of all new smartphones. The only other competitive smartphone operating system left is Apple's iOS. Over the last decade, those two have combined to knock out Symbian, BlackBerry, Palm OS, Web OS, and the Windows Phone. Android has, of course, made the leap from smartphones to watches, tablets, and TVs. 
The OS is up to version 11, released just a few weeks ago, with updates available first to Google's own Pixel phones and gradually migrating out to other models from other companies. Initial reviews say it's delivering incremental improvements, just like expected. Hey, that's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending September 18th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned and with other multimedia. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Ed Kaufman from Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. So when did he buy that black jacket? And does he have only like one black jacket? Does he have like multiple copies of the same jacket? Rumor has it he has multiple copies of that same black jacket. But <laughs> Wow. And, I, and the That's yeah, just, so yeah. So it's I, sort of like the Steve Jobs turtleneck or Yeah. I, I'd wait for the Wall Street Journal version of it to make sure that he actually has multiple versions of it. But uh, it's just a rumor today that he has multiple jet I was just wondering because, you know, you, you'd work for the guy. Maybe you had some inside knowledge for, you know, so a real scoop for us. I I, uh, I knew him uh, pre-Black Jacket, uh, I believe. He was uh, the oh, Black Jacket. Really? There was a pre-Black Jacket? The, well, this particular version of the Black Jacket. There was a, a much simpler earlier version of the black jacket uh it's 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 definitely uh, gotten more expensive over time